Kids, it's nice to go to the left and go to the right. Amen? It's nice. It's nice. And one of the things uh, uh, I was telling a guy who called me this week was asking me about uh, church things this week, and he was asking me about different things that we do. And, and I was telling him, one of the things I don't know if I'll ever get rid of is keeping the children right here next to us when we worship because it's such a reminder of how to worship and just having the carefree. Like, I, I, when uh, the Lord says in the Scriptures to come, we come to the kingdom like children, I think some of us could, would love to just have that feeling again like a child where I don't really care how or what anybody thinks of me while dancing. You know, you can jump up around and just do circles and think you're the best dancer ever when you're three. You know, and, and honestly, some of you really need that really bad, like to remember that it doesn't matter, that the Lord sees you. How I many, you know, when your kid's like three, everything, they, well, most everything they do is just cute. You know, most everything. I'm not going to say everything, but most everything is just cute. Like, oh, they look at him, they're dancing. I've got this whole video of Reese singing, and she hates it for me to bring it out now. But at the time, she's like three, and she's singing, and she's making up words about unicorns and all this other stuff. And it is priceless. It's priceless. <clears throat> and, uh, and she doesn't care. And you know what? I've, and, and how I'm looking at that, I think that's how the father looks at us sometimes and goes, this is the most adorable thing ever. Because they don't care. They're just being themselves. And I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Well, this morning we've been talking about it for two or three weeks uh, uh, about supporting missions. You know, one of the things, the stories that I've always told when it came to supporting missions, uh, and I'm going to tell it this morning before I invite Daisy up, um, that uh, you're, you're one or two. All right, so if we were to compare it to this, and this is probably the best analogy that, I've, that I think I've heard, or uh, uh, I, I didn't invent this, I got this from somebody else, and it's just good, okay, it's just good. Um, there is a well, a deep well, and somebody is in there, and they need help. And the analogy is this, is somebody needs to go into the well, all right? Not everybody wants to go into the dark abyss of the well. There are dangers, there are traps down in there, there are things that you might encounter that are not friendly or nice, uh, uh, but one thing is for sure, we have to go into the well if we're ever going to save the person in the well. So there's two things you can do at this point. You can either go in the well yourself, but somebody's got to be there to hold the rope. So one or, you're one or two of the people there. Are you the person that, that, that goes into the well? By the way, if you are, you might want to talk to her afterwards and see where God's calling you. Otherwise, you are the person that holds the rope. And as the church, we hold the rope for other missionaries as well. Jason Morris out of Vietnam. Kyle Embry, who does uh, high school ministries and stuff all over the state of Texas. We support him as well. And we're going to be supporting uh, Daisy as well. She uh, launches out into the great unknown. We're going to hold the rope for her. And so uh, I've invited her to come. She's going to come share. And, uh, uh, man, let's just uh, let's, let's be all ears and let's listen to what she has to say and let's hear what God's called on her life. Amen? Amen. You have the platform. Uh, let, let me grab a microphone from someplace. Oh, this one is Joy's. You can tell because she has acid hands. So it does work. There we go. Hey, Joy's hello. Um, thank you all so much for having me. It's actually really funny. Um, at training, we go over that exact story about holding the rope, and that's one of our things that we talk about a lot. So that was really cool. Um, a little backstory: four years ago, um, I was at um, I was 
at First Baptist in Burnett. That's where I'm from. And um, they had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Romania and work with the gypsy people there. Um, and so I kind of, I took that as more of a um, opportunity to travel. I was really interested in traveling. And so um, I went for it and I went and it just completely changed the direction of my life. And so I went back two more times after that um, and I just really got to learn about um, a different culture, specifically the gypsy culture. They're very, um, very discriminated all over Europe and they are poor and no one really wants to help them. Um, so I just really felt like I wanted to be connected with them and I wanted to help them. Um, so, yeah, so uh, last summer I went on a, a little bit longer trip to Romania and I got to stay there for two months and live with, with them in the community. Um, and it was so awesome and I got to see how they lived and I spent every day with the youth and with the community and it was just, um, it really showed me how being somewhere for longer than a week you can really, really do some good and, um, and uh, change, change people's outlooks on the world. And so I got to um, lead a Bible study with the youth girls there, and it was just it was an amazing experience. And so I got back, and I, um, I went to school at Mary Harden Baylor in Belton. And so um, I just didn't know really what I wanted to do. It was my senior year, and I... Uh, I had no idea what I was, where I was going or anything. And so I started looking at um, mission opportunities and mission organizations, and I found a few that I thought were perfect, and then it just kind of fell through, and nothing was really going um, how I wanted. And so um, I found an organization called GoCor. Um, GoCor is a nonprofit, small organization that um, helps connect people with larger organizations. And so um, I was connected to a job in Croatia working with gypsy people, and it was perfect, and it was really what I wanted to do. And then a couple weeks ago, actually, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but a couple weeks ago, um, they let me know that I was being redirected because of various reasons in that area. They just thought that it's better for me to change my location. <laughs> so I will now be going to... Bulgaria, um, and also working with Roma people, gypsy people. And I was just, I mean, this happened two weeks ago, so I'm still kind of processing it, but um, it's very exciting, and um, it's actually doing more of what I wanted to do, and so it was really cool to see how the Lord closed the door that I was certain was the one that he opened for me. And he opened another one that was, I mean, immediately they had a plan and I was going to Bulgaria and it was just um, his timing and maybe that's just the way it was supposed to go. I don't know why, but, um, and so in Bulgaria, I'll get to work with um, gypsy kids and youth and um, I'll get to help them start an after school program. Um, the kids usually will drop out at fourth grade and start work or do something, fifth grade. Um, a lot of the girls are married by eighth grade and they're, they're starting families. And it's just, it's a really um, hard culture to, um, to help because they're so set in their ways and 
So this after-school program will really help um, show them that they have a future that's um, different from what they know. So <laughs> I'm very, very excited. Um, this organization that I'm going through is called One Collective. Um, and they have ministries all over the world, um, which is just so, so amazing to, I went to training a couple of months ago, and um, I got to meet people that were going to the Middle East, people that were going to Mexico, Greece, all over. I mean, it's just amazing what the Lord is doing through this organization. And so, um, like most things, it's, it costs money. <laughs> And they, because they're a nonprofit organization, I raise my own support. Um, and with the holding the rope um, demonstrator analogy, yeah, um, it really is so the relationship I have with people here is more than just a financial re relationship. It's a, um, a prayer relationship. Um, I, I have financial par partners, but part of that financial partnership is through prayer, and um, that's really the biggest part, in my opinion, but, because where there's prayer, the, the money will, it'll come, it'll, it'll happen, because, so, um, I would ask that y'all prayerfully consider um, financially supporting, but just to um, remain in my, in my little prayer log, I guess, and I have a newsletter I'll send out and stuff, and just, um, yeah, to be praying for me. It's exciting, and I'm so excited to share this with y'all. And, um, you know, I didn't even know about this community, this church. It's so cool. I love it. But, <laughs> yeah, that's about, that's my little short presentation. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We talked on the phone before, uh, before she came in today, and one of the things I was telling her is like, you know, if you're going to go into ministry, part of ministry, your job is to minister and be a fundraiser. There's no way around it. That's part of the ministry, and you can't be ashamed of it. One thing I used to say uh, when I youth pastored, uh, I'd never apologize for raising funds, and I never apologize for spending your money. I will spend your last dime on the kingdom. I don't apologize for that. That's one thing I've always been that way about. Uh, the one thing I've never been accused of when it comes to money on that end is, well, you're wastefully spending it. Well, then I wasted it on people. By all means, you can yell at me all you want, because that's always going to be. And, and as I watch a young person go off into the ministry or go off into a place, you know, I'm listening to her story, and she's like, well, the place changed, but the people didn't. And often what God calls us to is not necessarily a place, but often to a people. And, and I think sometimes we, for, we can forget that real easy, but the truth is, obviously, we see who she was called to, because it didn't matter where she went, because she was going to the same people. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. God, had calls, God has called her to a people and to help a people. And I don't know about you, but seeing eighth graders get married, that is a different culture. All right. Uh, as a youth pastor, I can say I've seen eighth graders get pregnant, but not necessarily married and get pregnant. Uh, different cultures, different places. There's different things that we encounter no matter what, wherever we go. Uh, and, and here's the thing at the end of the day. It's all the Lord's not surprised. The Lord is sins. And he asked for those to answer the call. And, and answering the call is hard. It sends you places sometimes you don't know you're going to go. You know, when, I, when, when the Lord called me to ministry, the one thing that I had to come to grips with is that God might call me away from everything that I found familiar. And I had grown up in the North Texas area all my life to, to, to come down here, which is not far. It's four hours. But it, every place you move is a different culture. Every place you move is a different culture. 
And it's, it's uh, but the irony of such things as this, and let me encourage you here, is that, I, you know how much I get asked if I'm from here all the time? <laughs> or, you, or you were born and raised here. You've been here your whole life. No, I haven't. I know I haven't. There are some places God sends you, and you just fit like a glove. And, and in those places, you, you have to know in those moments that God has called you to those people. Because how, how does it work any other way, right? God has called you to these people to love them, to care for them, just as they are. Just as they are. Bring the gospel to them just as they are. So we're always going to support that, especially locals who are being called. Uh, we were laughing about, uh, she was like, I don't know how I know your name. And I was like, well... Did you go to youth ministry anywhere in the last, you know, so many years out here and everything? She's like, well, Chad uh, uh, Nelson was our youth pastor back in the day. Then, then we've definitely probably been around each other, whether you realize it or not. The Chad's come in and, and taught uh, when I had uh, my youth group. He's come in and preached. And, and me and Chad, we go way back as youth pastors here. Uh, uh, Chad is, is still living in Bern and still doing some ministry there. And, and, and uh, we're still really great friends. And uh, he was a great man of God. So... We had a lot of connections there, so it's, it's, it's not by happenstance that we encounter each other, and it's not by happenstance that you have found your way in here today. Uh, we believe in providence, amen? The Lord, is, the Lord knows what He's doing here. He's partnered, partnered us for a reason. I'm always going to support those who feel called, and I'm going to tell you right now, I know a lot of single females these days that are leaving for the ministry. They need prayer. They need prayer. They're answering the call. As hard as that is, they're answering the call. They drop everything and they go. They leave everything that's comfortable and familiar to go embrace the unknown. I love Mark Batterson's word for the unknown, though. He calls it adventure. He calls it adventure. Speaking of adventure, we're going to jump into Mark uh, chapter 13 today. And this is definitely going to be the unknown. We're going to talk about the future this morning. The future. We kind of taking our time through all of this gospel this morning. We've worked hard to keep things in context, and, but today is going to be kind of a different day because I'm going to kind of press through some of this uh, because in actuality, there's a lot of things here in this chapter that, we could sp- that literally there are entire ministries set up to unfold and unpack. And for me to try to like do it all in a 20-minute setting uh, uh, is not going to happen. It's just not. And so we're going to press through some of it. We're going to like kind of stay on the surface where I might be more apt to jump in deeper in some places. Uh, right here, I would say this, that if you want a deeper look into some of the things we're going to talk about today, I would encourage you to go read books and go, and go research and do some of this for yourself because a lot of it is left up to interpretation uh, because there's some things that are going to be talked about that Jesus brings up where he's quoting some of the Old Testament uh, where it, it, there is a lot of debate back and forth. And I'm not here to get into debate this morning. I'm here to really just lay, lay on the gospel and touch about the gospel and on the things that Jesus is trying to talk about uh, with his apostles. So we're going we're gonna to focus on the gospel side of things. We're going to focus on the human side of the interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Uh, and if you want a deeper look, by all means, please, please go look. Um, and I'm going to start out this morning, you know, we've talked about when Jesus wanted to get things kicked off, he would often ask questions just to get, and most of the time it was questions that he knew, they were rhetorical questions, questions he knew the answer to, but this morning I'm going to start you off with one as we talk about the future today. What if you knew the future? What if you knew what was going to happen tomorrow or the next day? And maybe not the big things that were going to happen, what if it was just like a few small details? How would the future, what you know of the future, change your present? Things to think about. Would you change the things you do? Would you change the way you act? 
And I think that's an interesting thing to think about, to ponder. I, I'm reminded uh, years back, uh, my wife, I'm, I'm getting ready to leave. I was a, I was a computer-aided drafting engineer, basically a CAD engineer, and uh, getting ready to leave for work. I worked in Dallas, far away off, so it's like 4.30 in the morning. I'm getting up and taking a shower, and I come back in. I'm getting ready to leave and say bye. I kind of wake my wife up as I'm getting ready to leave, and she says to me, she goes, hey, I just had this dream, and, and I, I was like, okay, let's, let's hear it, and, and she's like, well, in my dream, we had another baby, and at this time, we'd had two, and they were fairly big, and uh, I was like, okay, all right, I'm listening, and she's like, yeah, it was this, I said, well, was it a boy or a girl? She goes, it's a girl. I go, yeah, that figures, you know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, can't, for whatever reasons, boys elude me, and, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, I'm listening still. She's like, yeah, she was so vivid. I was like, really? And I was like, well, did the baby, did you have a baby name her? She's like, yeah, the baby's name was Reese. And she was, I had her, I'm in the hospital bed. I had her in this little pink blanket, and I'm looking down at her. I'm like, it's okay, Reese, it's okay. And I was like, that's a lot of detail, you know? And I was like, you know, maybe that's the Lord. I'll pray about it today. And I'll go to work, and I'm thinking about it at work, and I call her up, and I said, man, I think that's the Lord. I just think it's the Lord, you know, uh, and it had been quite a while since we'd had, if you all know, like the difference, Re Reagan is graduating high school, Reese is starting fifth grade. It had been a while, all right? It had been a while, and so when we were sitting there, I was like, I think that's the Lord. You know, we always talked about the reason uh, uh, we haven't stopped that process was because we thought about having a third child. Well, maybe this is God saying it's time. And so we agree. The rest of the story is simple, right? We moved towards that, and, and there came a time where we literally secured the pink blanket, and there was this moment in the hospital where Joy's holding the baby, Reese, in the pink blanket, and it was this deja vu moment. She's already seen this moment before. We, we got a glimpse. God gave us this divine glimpse of what could be, and how we responded to it could have changed everything. We could have said, uh-uh, I got two, and they're a handful enough. We, we, we could have said that. We could have, but we say, you know what? I'm going to run straight to the future that he's showing me. And listen, man, you and I both know, kids cost a lot of money. It was like, well, we got two, and we're not that poor. We get three, we're really poor. <laughs> and right? And so, like, wait, no, but we, we run straight towards it, right? And we have this, like, deja vu moment, right? God gave us this glimpse of the future. And you can argue whether it was dream or happenstance. You can decide. I mean, I know I, how we felt about it. Uh, you can absolutely see how we processed all that information. And, and what we acted on came to life. Came to life, right? So I'm going to ask you again, what if you knew the future? What if God gave you a glimpse of what was to be? How would you respond? Now, that was a good case, right? What if it's not? And this is what we're talking about this morning. What if it's not? Mark chapter 13. Verses 1 through 12. And we'll finish the rest here in a little bit, but let's just deal with the first 12. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at, the mag at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across the valley from the temple. 
Peter, James, John, and Andrew <clears throat> came to him privately and asked him, tell us when, when all this will happen. What sign will, will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many and you will hear wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations will go to war against nation and kingdoms against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You're going to be, you will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you're my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must be preached to all the nations. But when you're arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Jesus, or just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child. And children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you're my followers. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I don't know about you, but right away you can see the heaviness and the gravity of the future events upon Jesus. The disciples are enamored. They're taken back or smitten by the size and the scope of the buildings, right? They're looking at the temple, looking at the carvings, looking at how it's constructed, and they're marveling at it. One of the times that I think about this, I think about in the movie Gladiator where one of the Ethiopians comes up and he sees the Colosseum at Rome for the first time and he says, I didn't even know men could build such things. And we see this is the temple. This is not the first temple. This is the second temple, the one that Ezra built, right? And here looking at it, they're looking at all these things and they're just, I mean, come on, it's beautiful. It's the very thing that's supposed to house the Spirit of God. And so they're kind of taken back by it. But let's be honest, Jesus has never been a fan of outward appearances. He's never been a fan of what looks pretty on the outside. Doesn't mean it's pretty on the inside. He cares more for the inward than he always has the outward. Jesus cries over people, not buildings. His heart, and you can tell by his, the way he's talking, it's lingering elsewhere, right? It's looking into the future. Where he says not one stone is going to be left on this thing. The disciples, you know, they're, they're shaking a little bit. I mean, I mean, they were just talking. It's kind of like taking, uh, what's, what do they call that, Debbie Downer? What, I mean, come on, Jesus, we're having this good time. We're looking at how great the temple looks. And it's like, hey, look how good this temple looks. Oh, it's all going to be destroyed. Come on, man. Come on. But it's heavy on him. It's heavy on him. He's thinking about the things of the future. And from this point, basically through verse 13, Jesus is very descriptive about the immediate future and even the fate of his friends. He gives them this glimpse. Even the purpose of the... And based off what we just read, it isn't an easy future to hear. It's not easy. It isn't the future that you're hoping to have, and I'm sure it wasn't the future that they're hoping to have. Right? How would you like that to be said to you? Great, we're going to stand trial. Awesome. If we're having to stand trial, there's a pretty good chance we're in jail already. Great. This sounds like a great life coming for us, right? This is what's waiting for them tomorrow, right? And why are they so curious? For the same reason I'm sure all of you would be. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you want to know what, what it is that leads to this? Wouldn't you want to know what it takes to get to this place? I mean, because after all, as much as we pray for health, wealth, and prosperity, whether we like that, that whole phrase or not... 
I mean, the truth of it is, because we're always trying to stay clear of trouble, we're always trying to pray clear that we never have anything wrong or that we never make wrong decisions, and we're praying always, Lord, let me never feel failure. Lord, never let me allow a decision that's ever going to harm me. Lord, I just want to be comfortable my entire life. Nobody ever prays to be uncomfortable, right? I'm just being honest. So most people wouldn't want to steer clear of this, right? They don't want to drive towards it. Now, in, in a situation like with, we were with Reese, that was an easy d- decision, right? There's no pain involved for me. By the way, I didn't scream at all when Reese was born. <laughs> I'm just saying. It, I, it, you know what? I didn't even feel anything. Like, it was just like, boom, it happened. And I was like, that's awesome. Now, my wife, she has a different testimony. Totally different testimony, right? She had some, she had some pain in that game. And so, like, how we approach, it was easy for me to go, that sounds like God divine, because I'm not the one carrying that thing for nine months. Like, it sounds so easy to me to just say, that sounds like a good idea for me. You know, my wife's like, yeah, it does. Yeah, that's why it's not your decision. (laughs) It's mine. Because I'm the one that's going to have to endure that. I'm the one that's going to have that. And when you go to work, guess who's raising that baby? Yeah. But this is the thing, how we all approach it, how everyone's side is different, how we all come to the conclusion, right? And you look at the disciples, hear what they're facing. He tells them all this stuff is about to happen, right? Well, what do you do? Do you run towards it? Do you run away from it? And by the way, you know, what they're, what they're looking at is, is they're facing persecution, right? And so like it or not, it kind of concerns them. The future concerns them, right? And it concerns all of us. All the future does. We want to know what is going to happen to tomorrow. All of us, if we're going to be honest, we would like to know what's going to happen tomorrow. By the way, if I'd have known the day, yesterday that my alternator was going to go out last night at 9 o'clock at night, I was replacing an alternator in my car. I would have probably thought about it during the week. You know what? I'm going to replace that thing before I have that problem right before I have to stay up in the middle of the night and change that alternator. I, I would have done some things different, right? The future concerns us. We're tempted uh, to, to, to know our future out of the sheer fear of the unknown. There's always this lingering fear of what we don't understand or what we don't know. There's always a fear of failure. Right? That's why you want to know. I just want to know what God's will is, Pastor. I know, because what you don't want is to experience the discomfort of failure. Right? Nobody wants that. That's why you want to know. I kind of want to know so that I don't have to be uncomfortable. I can embrace the future a lot easier if I already knew what the future was. Right? We also have a fear like we're going to miss out on something. Maybe something greater or something worse. Or we even have a fear of our life being shortened. If I make this decision, is it going to cost me something great? Is it going to cost me financially? Is it going to cost me physically? How we approach this knowledge is everything. Whatever the future may be, how we approach it is everything. Now, I can tell you how I approach it. You know, being a soldier, I'm kind of inspired uh, uh, at times by certain things, especially when it comes to like life or death or things like that. There are things that have inspired me in my life. One of the quotes that's found in Wild at Heart, a book uh, written by John Eldridge, which I believe he's quoting uh, G.K. Chesterton here. He quotes the G.K. as this, A soldier surrounded by enemies, if if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he'll be a coward and not escape. And he must not merely wait for death, for then he will be a suicide and will not escape. Now listen, he must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water and drink death like wine. This is how you embrace the unknown. You will never live as fully 
as you will on the edge of death. Like that or not, as a soldier and other soldiers that I know that are in here, I'm going to tell you that right now. That's the reason where there's, I'm, I, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you there was an addiction to combat. For the sheer purposes, I've never felt more alive than when I'm on the edge of death. Why do you think people jump off bridges on bungee jump and crazy stuff, jump out airplanes and stuff? That's not smart. That's not smart. There's no way that's wisdom. There's no way. Why do they do it? Because it's on the edge of death, and on the edge of death is when you feel like living. That's when you truly feel like you're living, living. All right? And this is how we have to embrace the future with the same mentality. I don't know what lies tomorrow. What I can tell you is I'm headed straight for it. Good or bad, I'm headed straight for it. Right? I'm going to fully embrace whatever future lies ahead of me, whether it lengthens my life or shortens my life, whether it's a life filled with old age or a life cut short. And by the way, I believe I'm already living my best life now. I don't need this standing over my shortener, uh, shoulder to feel the shortness of life because I live my life right now with a furious indifference to it. I can tell you I was talking to somebody the other day. We were talking about uh, 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 death and life, and, and I was telling man. When my 30s hit and all of a sudden it's like something came over me, whether I believe it was the call of God in my life that started to press me and says, you know what? I, I had worked so hard. I had a nice house. I had swimming pool, cars, everything that that the life could afford. My wife never had to work the entire time of our marriage up until we came here. But can I tell you this, though? I never saw my wife and kids. I was rarely ever home. One of the greatest regrets that I have in my life is not being there to watch my kids grow up. My, my two oldest. I've got to watch Reese grow up, but my two oldest, I wish. Now, by the way, they turned out to be great kids, which means my wife is awesome. My wife, because that's not for me. They turned out to be like her because I wasn't around, and I can honestly say I wasn't there, but I've tried to be there for the back end of their life because one thing hit me at, at 30. I do not want it to say on my grave that I was the best employer, the best employee, uh, the best, no, it better say best friend, best husband, best dad, that's what it better say. And I'm going to start living my life to earn those titles rather than the other ones. And if that means I have to take a pay cut to do that, I promise you this. I'm not going to miss my job when I go to heaven. But I'll miss my, I'll miss my wife and kids if I, if I reach there before they do. Now, the great thing about heaven is this. This is the one good thing. The Bible always talks about what you can't take. Right? You can't take your riches with you. You don't get to take anything with you. You can have your savings all you want because it ain't coming with you. You can have your houses and everything else not coming with you. But you can take your friends and you can take your family. You can take your relationships. Right? Saved people are going to be in heaven. So you know what you got to do. If you want them to be with you, like Jesus said, I want you to be with me where I go. I prepared a place for you. Guess what? That's the easiest way to, to be in heaven. Be in heaven together. Me and my wife, we're going to enter heaven together. My kids are going to be in heaven. Why? Because they're saved. They're saved. I don't have to guess their future. No matter what happens, whether life gives them life to the gray hair or life shortens them, I don't have to guess their future. I know their future. So whatever happens is neither here nor there because whether we see each, how long we see each other here is, not, is nothing compared to the eternity that I'll get to see them there. So I embrace life for good or for bad with a furious indifference to it. This is the future. These are the things I do know. These are the things I can say, right? I'm not ignorant of these things. But for the disciples, they're facing some things that are altogether scary. They're hard to hear. Heavy to bear. 
And all of this, you know, when we look at what is coming and why is it so important and why would it be so scary, right? But think about it. Think what he told them, right? He said that some people will look like Christians and they'll talk like Christians, but they, hey, they ain't, they're, not, they're not us, man. He's also going to talk about how there's going to be earthquakes. That's kind of a scary thing if you're not really, if you're in a place where there's a lot of earthquakes, right? There's going to be famines. That's not great. How about there's going to be wars and all kinds of uh, 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 rumors of wars, right? How about the fact that he says, listen, um, you're eventually going to be arrested and stand trial. I mean, how many of you are ready for that one in life? And the irony is that Jesus in that moment says, hey, man, don't worry. What? <laughs> how do I not worry? I'm not even in jail yet, and you're telling me that's where I'm headed. How do you not worry? How do you not get scared when Jesus tells you this is your future, right? And then what's crazy, he says, listen, and when you go to jail, like, don't worry about what you'll say. Well, first of all, I'm thinking if it's me, like, I'm not guilty. <laughs> um, but this is what Jesus says, and this is like so uh, funny to me, because Jesus goes, listen, you don't even got to worry about what you're going to say, because in that moment, the Holy Spirit come on you, and you're going to evangelize the gospel, because that's why you're there. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. So my life's going to turn horrible, right? I'm going to end up in jail, persecuted. They're going to be trying to try me. If they convict me, they kill me. But don't worry about it, because I'm telling them about you, that you are okay with me being there? How many, how many of you bought into the idea that Jesus always wants you in this good place where you're always safe and everything is good, right? Show me that in the gospel. Show me that in the gospel. <laughs> What's interesting when he talks about this persecution will be the platform for evangelism is that it basically tells us that no matter what your future is, whether it's good or bad, it's all for this reason, to evangelize the gospel. Whether you're provoked, whether you're treated fairly or unfairly, whether people are just downright mean to you, it's an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. And I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't all that comforting to them either, guys. I mean, they're human beings, right? I, I, I love that his last little point before we start getting into the rest of Mark is that he says, listen, Last thing I got to tell you right here before I start telling you about the just overall future is this. Everyone is going to hate you. Oh, how many of you are like affirmation is like your love language, right? You love, like me, I like a good attaboy, right? Like, oh man, pastor, you're doing a good job. Like, man, that feels good. I ain't gonna lie. That's like a warm blanket or a cup of coffee, amen? I mean, you know, it can feel really good. But there's, not, there's something about when Jesus just tells you, guess what? In your future, everyone will hate you. Aw, Everyone gets to hate you. That's, that's, that's what you get to look forward to. By the way, how many is everyone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Feel that? You feel that now? Everyone. Great. How, how come this wasn't on the pamphlet when we started following, right? Like, we thought this was the greatest thing under the sun. Jesus, he's doing all these miracles. Guess what? They're all going to hate you because you follow me. How come you didn't say that in the beginning? If you knew this, how come you didn't say that in the beginning, right? <clears throat> By the way, when anybody ever witnessed to you, did they ever tell you that? Hey, we want you to come to church where everyone will hate you. We want you to come to church because the rest of the world will hate you once you become one of us. And they really don't hate you. They just hate the one you follow because he convicts them. You know, I mean, nobody, nobody uses that as an evangelistic technique, do they? I don't see that in any seeker-sensitive church, right? It's not going to be on our big screens here. Everyone hates you because you follow Jesus. Is that a feel-good feel good message or what, right? 
And this is their future, right? Their immediate future. Picture their faces, right? What if Jesus told you that in the future you're going to face rejection of epic proportions? What if he told you that you're going to be hated by everyone simply because you follow him, right? That you're going to have to sharpen your eyes to detect those that are going to come as imposters. That you'll have to turn your, or tune your ears towards all the rumors and all the threats of wars. That you're going to have to prepare yourself for earthquakes and for famines, which means you've got to prepare for things that are, you've got to save up stuff, right? And to top it all off, this is only the beginning he called it the birth pains ain't nothing even born yet these are Braxton Hicks right you're like oh it's just no this is it was just Braxton Hicks like all right I'll go put all the bags back you know like I mean come on just the beginning right and then as if it like okay well it can't get any worse verse verse 14 like no it does it does you see why I can't get, like, there's a lot of places we could go with this, but there's only so much to talk about. Listen, there are whole ministries set up to talk about end times. There's no way I could cover in a year what it would take to talk about all the end time stuff. All right? Look at verse 14. We'll finish out the chapter. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious objects that cause, causes desecration standing where he should not be. And then in the New Living, I love it, it says, reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for a pregnant woman and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens the time, that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out. I've warned you about this ahead of time. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. He will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn the lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer's near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from, from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The coming of the Son of Man will be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. When he left home, he gave each of his slaves instructions about the work they were to do, and he told the gatekeeper to watch for his return. You too must keep watch, for you don't know when the master of the household will return, in the evening, at midnight, before dawn, or at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. I say to you, and I say to everyone, watch for him. Those powerful words. Jesus uses the same talk and the descriptions that those in the Old Testament writers used in the end days. It's the same warning that if you go back and you study the books of Daniel and of many others, you're going to see that He didn't give you anything more than what they've given you. And verse 32 reveals that not even Jesus knows the days or the hours of these things. 
Can I tell you something? After being in pastoral ministry for over a decade now and learning and seeing how pastors run things, and I wish every pastor was like Jesus in this sense. Can I tell you, you know, you know why? This is my personal kind of philosophy or theology when it comes to Jesus in this area. One of the things that's made me love Jesus as the shepherd above all things is that you know why God the Father doesn't tell Jesus when the day is come or when the hour is coming? Because he'd tell us. By the way, I've met a lot of leaders that wouldn't tell you things that they think would scare you, hurt you. They are already thinking for you. All oh, the masses can't handle this information, so we withhold it. You already know it. It's called American politics, right? You understand that, right? It happens in the church, too. There are church folks that believe that, you know what, we can't let them know what the finance is this or that, so we'll shade it in such a way so that it doesn't get everybody riled up because it, it's really not that big a deal or whatever like that, and they're always assumed that they know more or that they're somehow more intelligent than the masses, and so they make that decision for them. They allow you what you can know and allow you what you should know. Jesus just tells you everything. And what I love about it is, is how many times do you remember reading as we've covered the gospel of Mark where it says, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. By the way, praise God. He was like, well, I'm not going to hide it from you. Doesn't mean you'll understand it, but I'm going to tell you at least. How awesome is that? Jesus is the only only one like literally where we see this and I'm pretty positive that God didn't tell him everything because Jesus would tell us everything you ever had that best friend before you're like they're my best friend because they tell we don't have any secrets they tell me everything uh, I think Jesus knows what it's like to be your best friend if Jesus hadn't told you it's because he's not been privy the information to tell you God has said no I'm going to withhold that from Jesus because Jesus tells them everything man if that don't make you love him just that alone I mean that he would share the secrets of the kingdom. Every secret that he was given, he shared. Every secret he was given, he shared. That's powerful. That's powerful. He's constantly sharing secrets of the kingdom. But let's be honest. You might not like all those secrets, what they're going to say. You might not understand them. Uh, and there's a lot not to like here. One of those being is the great misconception that what it is to be a Christian or to belong to Christ because what he says is there's going to be many ministries in the last days that are going to rise up and be false ministries. Man, they're going to be charismatic. They're going to be so believable. So believable. Their message will seem like it's the truth. And you know what? The greatest lie is 99% truth. It's that 1% that makes all the difference in the world. It's that 1%. You know, the devil, when, when he's quoting scripture to Jesus through the, the, the desert, right? He never once messes up the words. But how he used scripture was totally wrong. And he perverted the scripture by speaking it in a way that was totally wrong, that where it didn't apply. <clears throat> it's subtle things like that that will be all the difference to these ministries that are coming. Subtle things. This is why it's so important to have a solid foundation in the word of God. And to be, feathered, to be tethered to that foundation, right? This is why you need to be reading your Bible every day. And if you don't have a Bible, you need to get one. That digital thing is great as long as you got a power in your device. How many of you have been upset when you didn't have power in your device? Guess what? Books don't require it. There's no plug-in adapters. You don't have to worry about if you got electricity or not. You can just get a book. It doesn't have like no electric. You just open it up and there it is. I would encourage you that if you don't have a physical Bible, you need to get one. And you need to invest some time daily into the scriptures because these things are coming. You, you can't be ignorant to that. Jesus is telling you. And how you respond today, you could say, well, you know, I've got time. 
Good luck with that one. Good luck. That's the other lie the devil likes to tell you, that you have time. Jesus says there are signs that are coming. How will you know what to look for if you don't read about it and understand what's coming? <clears throat> you, you have to be invested, right? There are going to be those that come, and they're going to look like Christians, and they're going to talk like Christians, but they're not going to be Christians, though, right? If anything, what Jesus is saying in the Scripture, that a time is coming when he will sift the wheat from the tear, right? The wheat and the tear grow together. And, if, and here's the problem with the church. The church is always trying to harvest the wheat from the tear. All right? And then what happens is this. Some of the wheat gets chopped up with the tear and gets thrown out too. We call that in church just being hurt by the pastors, being hurt by the church, being hurt by everything else. Because we're constantly trying to sift out the wheat and the tear. But the truth of it is, Jesus will do this. And when he does, when he does, it will be obvious, Right? First of all, what's neat about this, he says, listen, when these ministry comes, he says they're going to be so seemingly right that if, I love the, the, the verbiage here, if it were possible, even those who are mine will be fooled by this. It doesn't say they are going to be fooled. It says that, it, that it's so convincing that even those who are mine, who know me, will think at times these guys might be right or these guys might be okay, that it might be of the Lord. But I'm reminded in 1 John, the Apostle John who wrote in, in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out that that might become plain that they're not all of us. Or how about the New Living that reads like this? That was the ESV. This is the New Living. This will make a little bit better sense. Uh, New Living Translation reads, These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they didn't belong with us. There are those that are going to walk with us, but they ain't us. There are those that are going to come, and they're going to see the value of tithing, but that doesn't mean they're saved. There are those they are going to talk about Jesus and say things because they want to fit in and they want to be liked. And the love that we have to offer, it's contagious. The love that we have to offer, it's addictive. We offer the ability to belong to something bigger than you. We offer the ability to belong to something greater than you. And they're going to want that. They don't care about Jesus. They just want to feel good, right? And they'll walk with us, and they'll talk like us, and they'll say all the things. Some of you are like, I already know people like this, right? They're hypocrites, right? We see how they live on Facebook versus how they live in their real life, right? You know, we, we know people. They look like us. They talk like us, but they ain't us, right? <clears throat> Jesus says that if you're not rooted, it's time to start digging in. Because the last great truth that he leaves us right after this whole gloomy description of the future, and I'm going to begin to close with this, Charity. He says, you don't know when the master of the household return in the evening at midnight before dawn at daybreak. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives without warning. So when will all this take place? That's what we all want to know. When is this going to happen? And he says, we don't know. That's your answer. He says this. Watch for it. Watch for it. Well, how do I know what to do then? Well, uh, what that means is be ready every day. Did you get up and pray this morning? Have you read your Bible this morning before you even got here? By the way, if you think I'm the person that's supposed to feed you every day, you're wrong. <clears throat> you're wrong. You feed yourself. How many, how many of you, like, you know, you're feeding your kids still? They're, they're 25 and you're, like, still feeding them. No? Uh-uh. They pick up the fork themselves or they're going to starve. You don't feed grown people. Because you raised a grown person and know how to eat for themselves. 
That's what a grown, mature person looks like. By the way, a mature Christian is a Christian that feeds themselves. If you're not feeding yourself, if the only time you listen or hear the Bible is when you come to church, you are not a mature Christian. Hear me. Maturity is something that we do every day. We teach our kids how to grow up every day. We have to, I have to take Reese. Eventually, in the next two years, she's going to be in junior high. I've got to start preparing her how to be a young woman. She can't stay the kid forever. I wish she could, but she can't. All right? And when they get in, you know, part of the thing as a youth pastor was this. I had to train up how, how teenagers, how to become adults. What does that mean? It means i got to give them responsibilities. It means i got to trust them with things. It means that, you know, and you see it here. We let teenagers, uh, uh, when Emily's here, we let Emily's part of the worship team, right? Because I don't care how old you are, if your heart's right, we're going to let you. Because, because here's the thing is you have to learn somewhere, right? Our kids are up over here dancing, and one day they're going to be a part of the worship team. It starts little. We start teaching them at an early age. Eventually, we, listen, you don't want to sit there and feed them forever. Can you imagine your 16-year-old still wearing that baby bib, sitting in that deal, and you trying to feed them? I'm like, man, this is old. This is a grown baby. No, maturity. Maturity is when you feed yourself. When you feed yourself. And that's what we're aiming for. Why? Why is it important to be mature? Because Jesus says this, the time is coming. The time is coming. And, and he doesn't just say watch for it. He says, and don't be caught sleeping. You know, one of the things we raised money back in the day for uh, youth ministry, and <clears throat> one of the things that I did is I had these leather gloves I bought. We were raising money uh, for missions, and, and I had bought these leather gloves that I really liked, and, and uh, we were uh, picking up scrap metal. So I knew it was like we're, they're going to get used, right? But on one hand, one of the things that I wrote was a scripture in Genesis where after the fall, God looked at Adam and said, from here on out, you're, you must subdue the earth. And, and, and the word subdue is like conquer it. And, and listen, he didn't mean like conquer it and it was just going to produce for you. He meant like you're going to have to sweat from here on out. From here on out, nothing in your life, Adam, is going to be easy. If you want food, get that axe and pick and hit the ground and keep digging, brother. If you want something to eat meat-wise, you're going to have to go kill it. No more of me feeding you. You're going to have to grow up, Adam. That day, so I wrote that, I wrote that whole scripture in Genesis on my left hand. And on my right hand, I remember, listen, it's not unusual to hear Jesus say, don't be caught sleeping. This is also the same guy who, who is quoted when it says, when it comes to being one of his disciples, he said, no one who turns from the plowshare, turns his back from the plowshare and looks back behind him, right, is fit to work the plowshare. So Jesus basically said, even to be a disciple, if you, if, if you think you're just going to take a day off, probably not worthy. Not worth, how are you going to know when the day comes? If you're slacking in your walk, if you're slacking in your pursuit for Jesus, how are you going to know? So I wrote that scripture on the back of my hand, and that was to remind me that hard work, there's no other way. That, that I can't even turn around for a second. I have to live my life like it's the last day every day. I have to pursue Jesus like this is the last opportunity I get to pursue Jesus every day. One of the most profound things that hit me in that moment is looking back and reflecting back upon Jesus in Acts 2 or Acts 1, right? The resurrection had taken place. And in Acts 1, it says Jesus went about teaching the kingdom principles. And I was thinking, isn't that what he was preaching before he died? <laughs> How many of you would preach the same message? If you got a second chance, you died on the table and came back how many of you would live the same life you're living right now? 
And by the way, if you wouldn't, are you living your best life then right now? Jesus' message did not change. His actions did not change. Jesus came back to life and lived the same life. The same life. Would that be said about you? And if not, why not? You know the future. You will be persecuted for his name. People will hate you. Look, have you not seen our political climate right now? If you're a Christian, people are not fans of you right now. You stand against a lot of things that are in the movement right now amongst the communities. I mean, everywhere you go, homosexuality, uh, the, the, a lot of the feminist culture, a lot of this stuff that's floating around right now, you are, they are not big fans of the way you believe. Make no mistake about it. But Jesus said that's not our opportunity to gossip about them. That's not our opportunity to talk bad about them. That's our opportunity to evangelize and love them. That's what that is. This is why he's telling us this is the future, right? If we really wanted to get into it, we'd go into Timothy where it talks about all these things are going to be prevalent in the end times. We'd go, we could go farther and farther. As farther as you want to look. You want to know what's coming? Go find out because it's there. It's there. Go look through the epistles. It's there. Go read the book of Revelations. By the way, we win. Spoiler alert. Walk like the victors then. Walk like you live in victory then. Because, man, I don't know about you, but it's time to start living your best life right now. You know, the thing, last thing I'll leave you with this is Revelations 12, 10, 11 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And listen, it says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They gave it all. They gave it all. No other way around it. Give it all. What does God want from you? All. All your heart, all your life, all your time, all of it. He wants it all, right? God has given you different passions. We've talked about this in the past. God wants to use the things you're passionate about to evangelize his name across the earth and be glorified. To each of you, have, now my job as pastor is to help you discover those passions. What are you passionate about and how can we help equip you to get it done? Because make no mistake, until you figure that part out, how are you going to evangelize to the best of your ability? Because, man, you can try it my way, but it'll never be as good as your way. Know that right now. The way I talk to people is not going to be the way you talk to people. But God has sent them you. The people that are in your lives, God sent them you. God didn't send them me. I always think it's funny when I hear people, I'm going to bring them to church and get them saved. Man, you get them saved in your house, then bring them. Get them saved, wherever. I remember Joy's grandfather got pictures of him baptizing a guy in a, a ditch. He's down there in the culvert baptizing a guy in the rainwater that's in the ditch. If you think you need a church to see somebody get saved and baptized, you are missing it. Jesus says not one stone's going to stand. And you know why? You know why he didn't care about it? Because he built the church in us. Tea time's an awesome place, and it's nice to have all the carpet and all the stuff. But at the end of the day, church is here. The church is here. And it's in you. It's in you. And when we love each other, it's there. And when we speak life to each other, it's there. 
That's why it doesn't matter wherever we go, we carry the church with us. When we're at Chick-fil-A over here, uh, it's not church because it's Chick-fil-A. I know you think it is, but it's not. It's church because Christian people are there. When we're at Walmart, there's enough of us. The church will be there. It's wherever we go. We carry the light with us. Amen? Let's worship Him this morning.